0: To the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. As uh, some of you may know, uh, I have not been all Christian in my whole life. Well, I had occasionally gone to like a little Sunday school thing or a church service with extended family or a youth group with friends in my childhood. I did not have a genuine relationship with Jesus until high school, when I started going to a local youth service pretty regularly. And I found real connection and community there, and I learned so much about who God is and what life with God looks like there. And it was really, really wonderful. I would not be here today without those early formative experiences in my faith of youth leaders and my peers helping to disciple and encourage me, and through all of that through the latter part of high school. It was not perfect because no church is, but it laid a really solid foundation for what my faith is today. Now, all churches are made of people and all of people have their brokenness and flaws. And that's one of the really beautiful things about the church is that you have all of these messy and complicated people coming together in one space and learning to choose love and unity and working through that brokenness together because we all are are working through that Um, even as we follow Jesus. And the reality of that is just as messy and imperfect as we are. And in a youth church setting, this is particularly true. Because not only do you have normal human brokenness, but you have all of the shenanigans and drama and immaturity of high schoolers. And those things put together make for a pretty tough combo. A few months after I'd started going to this church, it was getting close to Christmas and I wanted to give all of my friends cards. So I picked out this really cute pack of cards with like snowmen and reindeer and Christmas trees uh, because I grew up in Yuma. And when you grow up in Southern Arizona, you decide what the seasons are, not the weather. And I wrote out all these holiday messages in the cards. I started passing them out to my friends. But when I gave one of the cards to a kid I was going to church with and I had gone to school with for years, he got really angry and he started to berate me for it. You see, I had given him a card that said, happy holidays and not Merry Christmas. And he needed me to know just what a horrible, heretical error that was and that I should never ever do it again. And I on my part was super embarrassed and terrified that I was now going to lose all of my church friends over what was apparently a huge faux pas. And so the next year when I wanted to give out cards, I carefully separated out any card that said something besides Merry Christmas. And I gave all of those cards to my friends who didn't go to church or I knew wouldn't care and I saved all the Merry Christmas cards for all of my church friends so I could avoid having that kind of debacle again. And looking back, this whole incident is insane. And it was much more about an amateur high schooler with very strong opinions on holiday phrasing than about anything else. But it did shape how I looked at my church community and by extension to how I looked at God. And I learned that it wasn't my intentions or my heart condition that mattered but rather that it was vital to stay within certain boundaries of right behavior. The correct turns of phrase, avoiding certain bad behaviors and making sure others knew that I was engaging in the right things, but make it clear that I was in, in with the youth group, in with the church, and especially in with God. And if I didn't conform to this boundary marker spiritually, I thought that I would be on the outside looking in, outside of the club, alone without relationships with other Christians and certainly apart from God. And maybe you felt like this before, that in your ignorance, you revealed that you weren't fully a part of the club, that you didn't really know how to pray right or didn't know the words to the songs or where to sit or when you should be putting your hands up in service to show you're really into the worship that day or that you shouldn't fall asleep during the message. And getting that told to you so harshly feels really terrible. And it reinforces a narrative that's not only deeply unhealthy, but just blatantly untrue. And we all have a lot of different narratives about who God is and who we are and what the church means to us. And usually those narratives is some mix of both helpful and unhelpful messages. Some of us have been told that God is love, that God is faithful and that God is good. And we may have also heard that God only loves us when we don't screw up, that God expects us to do it all ourselves and that God is out to punish us when we aren't perfect. We may carry views from our families of origin or our experiences growing up that tell us that we can't trust other people or that we can't trust ourselves. And we may not really even think about these narratives very actively until they're challenged by our circumstances or by someone else. And then we might find ourselves up in arms to defend them like my high school friend with the Christmas cards or we might feel suddenly very unsure of ourselves because the stories we had been relying on no longer feel true or accurate. And especially when we look at our lives or the world and we feel stuck or hopeless in whatever particular situation we're in, the narratives we lean into about God matter deeply. They shape how we view the world and how we expect God and others to act. And when they fail to hold up, we can feel hurt and confused. The narrative that tells us that God will reward us for doing good things leads us to think that we are entitled for things to go exactly our way when we do good things, which just doesn't necessarily happen. And conversely, it means that if something bad happens, that it was inherently our fault. If something tragic happens, clearly we did something wrong to deserve it. In that narrative that God only helps those who help themselves, we miss out on having a real relationship with God And we never learn to rely on God or trust God with our hopes and needs. We simply try to control our lives through our own actions and works. And that view also reinforces a narrative that those who are struggling are worse than us. We are better than them because things are going right for us. So clearly we're doing the right things. We ignore any systemic factors that may be hurting them and holding them back. And instead we assume that their burdens are clearly some sort of moral failure. And that's just not true. If we believe that narrative that God is always angry, then we are not able to trust our creator. We live afraid of God and trying to appease God and wondering if we're ever going to be really accepted or loved by him. It's narratives like this that can control our behavior and thinking for years and have to be carefully dismantled and replaced with the true narratives of God that Jesus gives us instead. And through the final story in the life of Elisha that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at some narratives that need to be replaced, both in the lives of the people that told in the story and in our own. And last week, we heard the first half of a really, really tough story. Samaria is under siege by the Aramean army, leading to a famine and many people within the city starving. It's a truly desperate situation. And the king faced with these seemingly impossible circumstances declares that he is fed up with God and he plans to kill Elisha, God's prophet, to try and fix the situation. And as Tyler taught us last Sunday, his response is to blame God and Elisha rather than to face his grief and lean into that grief grief with God. And in the midst of a terrible period for his city, this king feeds into a narrative of control. God can't or won't help me. So I have to take control of the situation. I'll kill Elisha and that will fix things. There's little trust in God from Israel's king. But when he goes to tell Elisha this, to tell him that he's fed up with God, that he blames him and Elisha for these problems and that he's going to kill him, Elisha simply tells him that God has already provided a solution. Elisha said, listen, God's word, the famine's over. This time tomorrow, food will be plentiful, a handful of meal for a shekel, two handfuls of grain for a shekel. The market at the city gate will be buzzing. The attendant on whom the king leaned for support said to the holy man, you expect us to believe that? Trap doors opening in the sky and food tumbling out? You'll watch it with your own eyes, he said, but you will not eat so much as a mouthful. According to our holy man, God's already come through. The famine's over. The king's attendant or his officer, in some translations, just can't believe this though. Trapdoors opening the sky and food just coming out. What is this, cloudy with a chance of meatballs? He's just being realistic, really. There's no way food would just come out of nowhere, right? His view of the world just doesn't allow for miraculous provision. But before we start really criticizing this royal officer, let's reflect. What is our narrative of God? In particular, what is our narrative of God when things are not going well? When we are hurting, when we are lonely, when we are waiting and waiting for something to happen and it is just not there. From last week, we saw that the King's narrative was that Elisha and God were cruel and wanted to hurt them and that God would not help them in their time of need. From this officer, We see the narrative that God can't provide, that it's unrealistic and unbelievable. And we might believe something similar, that we have messed up far too much that for God to still love us, that our suffering is never going to end, that us or our circumstances will never get better. But what does God actually say to us? Is there something here that might teach us about who God really is? And the best narrative of who God is and what that means for us is found in the story of Jesus. In the book, Good and Beautiful God, author James Bryan Smith says this, because Jesus is the preexistent and eternal son of God, no one knows God or the nature and meaning of life more than Jesus. Jesus's narratives are the truth. He himself is the truth. So the key is adopting Jesus's narratives. And this is why reading and reflecting on the Gospels is so, so important. Our understanding of Jesus and our relationship with him will help us to have the same narratives of God as Jesus, God's beloved son, held. And if anyone can reveal who God really is to us, it is Jesus who is both fully God and fully human. Repeatedly, Jesus gives examples of who God is and what our true narratives of God should look like. Jesus tells us of a loving father waiting for his beloved, but misguided son to come home. He tells us that God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep of his flock to go after the one sheep who has wandered away. He says God is like a widow who has found a lost coin and celebrates lavishly when she does. God is like a vineyard owner who is so generous that even the workers who only came for an hour are given a full day's wages. In Jesus, we hear not only about God, but we see God in the flesh, see what he does, how he lives and loves others, how he cares for people, and how he turns the world and our lives upside down. Both Jesus and Elisha taught the truth of who God is to the world, that God is love, that God cares for us, that God is there for us always. But that truth is not always easy to see, in the midst of difficult circumstances. At the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, we see hurt and suffering. Jesus betrayed, tortured and hung on a cross after a sham trial for a crime he didn't commit. Jesus told his disciples that this would happen, but I wonder how much they really truly believed him. And certainly as it was happening, I imagine it was really hard for them to really believe that Jesus would actually rise again. Like the Israelites waiting in hopelessness for the siege to end, the disciples and followers of Jesus waited in despair during those three days Jesus was in the tomb. And we know the end of the story, but we have to remember that at this point, they don't know it fully yet. For the people stuck in the siege in Samaria and the followers of Jesus processing his death on the cross, the waiting would have been painful. And for us, this past year and a half of just trying to exist in a pandemic, feeling stuck, waiting for an uncertain outcome to feel safe again, to return to some kind of normal, has been a time of deep anxiety and struggle. What does this mean? What is it for? Is God even there? Does God care about us? And for the Israelites and followers of Jesus in this story, we see that God responds powerfully. In Samaria, we find a small group of people with leprosy sitting outside the city gate, close to dying themselves. They think that it cannot possibly get worse than this. So in a last ditch effort to survive, they go to the Aramean camp thinking that they will try and surrender themselves. So after the sun went down, they got up and went to the camp of Aram. When they got to the edge of the camp, surprise, not a man in the camp The master had made the army of Aram hear the sound of horses and a mighty army on the march. They told one another, the king of Israel hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to attack us. And panicked, they ran for their lives through the darkness, abandoning tents, horses, donkeys, the whole camp just as it was, running for dear life. These four lepers entered the camp and went into a tent. First they ate and drank, then they grabbed silver, gold, and clothing and went off and hid it. And they came back, entered another tent and looted it again, hiding their plunder. These desperate people expected that when they got to the camp of Aram, they would be prisoners at best and at worst outright killed. But instead they find that God has miraculously provided an end to both the siege and the famine. God sent the sound of a vast approaching army and terrified the Aramean troops into running away without any of their equipment or supplies. And this echoes the way God provided previously when Elisha revealed to his servant a few weeks ago in Megan's message an army of chariots of fire surrounding and defending them. And it's not a king or a military victory that first witnesses this miracle, but people who had been excluded from the community. Like so many other times in the Bible, God uses the outsider and the marginalized to reveal God's glory to the world. These people with leprosy were literally already outside of the city as biblical and cultural norms would have kept them away from the community, both physically and socially. With how difficult it was already to get food inside the city, I can't imagine that it was any easier for these people, and they were likely without other systems of support to help them too. They already thought they were past hope but it's them who God uses to bring news of the city's salvation to everyone else. Finally, they said to one another, we shouldn't be doing this. This is a day of good news and we are making it into a private party. If we wait around until morning, we'll get caught and punished. Come on, let's go to tell the news to the king's palace. So they went and called out at the city gate telling what had happened. We went to the camp of Aram and surprised the place was deserted. Not a soul, not a sound. Horses and donkeys left tethered and tents abandoned just as they were. This group of people with leprosy are the first to witness God's miraculous provision for the city. Earlier in the summer, God used Naaman, a temperamental general from Aram, who remember is literally the army that was just besieging Israel, to show God's glory there too through healing Naaman's leprosy. Many of us have a narrative that God only wants perfect people, people who already have it together, people who are on the inside and have never had any doubts. But over and over again, God uses outsiders and outcasts to reveal God's glory to the world. Jesus spent a good chunk of his time with what the Bible even called notorious sinners, not those who already thought they were perfect and had nothing more to do, but those who knew that they very much were not and still sought out the love and grace and teaching of Jesus anyway. And much like the people with leprosy being the first to witness God's provision for Israel after the siege and the famine, we see after Jesus' resurrection, it was not witnessed first by religious elites or even his normal disciples, but by women who in that time were treated closer to property than people. Throughout the stories of provision, we've seen from Elijah and across scripture, we see that God is challenging our narratives of who we think God is. Not exacting and cruel and only wanting perfection, but a loving and generous God who values everyone in God's kingdom. Now God has provided for Israel, but not everyone is able to really believe what has happened. The gatekeepers got the word to the royal palace, giving them the whole story. Roused in the middle of the night, the king told his servants, let me tell you what Aram has done. They knew that we were starving. So they left camp and have hid in the field thinking when they come out of the city, we'll capture them alive and take the city. The king cannot believe that what Elisha said would happen has actually come true. That God's provision and grace is the reality. This response isn't that surprising in our broken world. Our internal response is often to be untrusting, to self-protect and to be wary of what others tell us. I have a family member who often responds to the world this way. They tend to think that everyone else is always trying to get something from them. So they have to self-protect and get what get what's theirs first. If something goes wrong, then it's always someone else's fault. They were out to get them anyway. And if something goes right, the response is never gratitude, but vindication. I came out on top before someone else could take it away from me. And that's a pretty soul-sucking way to live. And it gets used to justify a lot of selfish behavior. And at the root of this mentality is distrust. I can't trust anyone. I can't be vulnerable. I just have to take what's mine and move on. Our internal narratives might also be driven by distrust, or by loneliness or by fear. When we are waiting, especially waiting in pain like the Israelites have been, our narratives about God, ourselves and the world are laid bare. And as hard as that may be, we have to identify and reflect on what those narratives are and challenge those that are not true. And that requires spending time alone with God and seeking God out in prayer, seeking out wise counsel from mature people around us and learning to reframe our own thinking. For the king in this story, the first step was sending scouts out to see if what Elisha had said was true and see if the Aramean army was really gone. And unsurprisingly for us, the scouts bring back the news that yes, indeed, what Elisha said would happen has actually come true. The army is gone and the famine is really over. The people then looted the camp of Aram. Food prices dropped overnight, a handful of meal for a shekel, two handfuls of grains for a shekel. God's word to the letter. This is exactly what Elisha told them would happen. God is faithful to what God says. Hebrews ten twenty three tells us, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. And just as he told the disciples over and over again, Jesus died and rose on the third day. And like the famine ending for Samaria, the despair and suffering of Jesus' death was followed by glorious resurrection, a hope that cannot be broken by anything. Many of the stories, Elisha the holy man, show God's provision and care. And then we see it again in the story of Jesus, just on the grandest scale. God providing a savior who would take the death meant for us and return victorious over sin and death forever. Much of Elisha's and Jesus's ministry was about showing this provision and challenging our false narratives about who God is. We might think that God is weak And so we need to seek our own ways of controlling our lives and something else to follow that can keep us safe. But the truth is, God is powerful. God is above all and the only one worthy of our worship. Maybe you think that God is withholding and doesn't really care about you. But the truth is that God is generous and cares deeply for us and provides us with what we need. Maybe we think that God won't fight for us, but the truth is that God is fighting for us with chariots of fire, even against things that we cannot see or understand. Maybe we think that God doesn't love us, but the truth is that God loves us so much that he sent his own beloved son to die for us so that we could have life with God forever. Maybe we think that God isn't there for us. God is far away. But the truth is that God is always with us. God is in it, in our lives with us. And God knows what it's like to wait, to be hurt, to feel betrayed, to feel alone. God is near, not distant from our pain. And one worship song that really helps to capture this for me is Future Past by John Mark McMillan. If you're not familiar with it, the chorus goes, you are my first, you are my last, you are my future and my past. God is always present and has always been present with us in our lives. We are surrounded with divine love from the beginning to the end, and nothing can separate us from that love. And even when our narratives of God are struggling to fully reflect the reality of who God is, God is still there, patiently waiting for us. In the book of Isaiah, God says, When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. And at the very end of the book of Matthew, when Jesus has risen from the grave and given the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, he says this to his disciples, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you don't remember anything else from this message today, remember this, God is with you always. Throughout this summer, we've gone through a lot of different facets of our relationship with God and with others and the narratives we hold there. And I encourage you to set aside some undistracted time alone to pray and reflect on what your internal narratives of God are. Are there areas that you struggle to release to God, whether that be your finances or your relationship status or just your time in general? When is it most difficult for you to trust God's goodness? Do you feel like you have to have it all together and be perfect before you can ask God for help? Do you struggle to believe that God really does forgive you when you mess up? Bring all of that to God. There is nothing you can say that God has not heard already and God is not waiting to jump out and say, I told you so, or to get you. God just wants you to come home and be loved. We can trust that God will draw near to us if we are willing to draw near to God too. And as we start to go deeper on what those narratives are for each of us, I highly recommend reading the book from our summer study, Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith, if you haven't started it already. It's a great entry point for looking at different false narratives that we hold about God and what the true narratives of God that Jesus reveals are. And it adds a lot of really helpful questions throughout the chapters and in the back of the book for helping us to work through this topic and introspect further and to go deeper on what those are and why we hold the narratives that we do. And it's been really helpful in starting to identify what false narratives we might hold, show us what the true narratives revealed by Jesus are, and work towards starting to replace those false narratives with true ones. And it's a really great resource on this topic, and I highly encourage you to take advantage of it. And as we wrap up our Elisha series today, I hope you were encouraged by the good news of who God really is, the generous and faithful God revealed by our holy man, Elisha, and later by Jesus. Through Elisha's story, we see that God cares for us. God teaches us. God provides for us, fights for us. God loves us. God is committed to God's people. And God walks through our pain and suffering with us. God is powerful and worthy of our worship and our praise. God is with us always. And I know that I have struggled to believe that God will still care for me when I've made a mistake and to slowly unlearn the narrative that my performance and perfection is what earns God's love for me. And this is a narrative that's taken me years to dismantle internally, and I still have to work at it. I still have to practice coming back to God's love, back to what actually sustains my soul. But I know that every time I do, God is waiting there patiently, helping me to come back once again, and welcoming me back into love and comfort and grace that I did not have to, be earn-, to earn. I did not have to be perfect to have that with God. And I hope and pray that each of you gets to practice that too. Remembering who God really is and coming back home to a God who longs to draw near to you. Please pray with me. God, I thank you that you are there. You are not a distant God who just watches what we do, who is separate, from our pain and our joy and our emotions and who we are, Lord. But you draw near to us. You drew near to us and became embodied as Jesus Christ, as fully God and fully human, so you could be with us and die for us and rise victorious over sin and death, Lord. Help us to hold on to that image of forgiveness, of your goodness, your holiness, your generosity, Lord. Even when it's hard, God, help us to figure out what our narratives, our false narratives are around you, Lord, to help us hold on to the true narratives we have and to start slowly replacing the narratives that are false with those that Jesus reveals to us, God, and help us out of those true narratives to learn to love you and to love others and ourselves with the depth that you do, God. We thank you for the story of Elisha, for helping to challenge the Israelites in his day and us now on what you are truly like, God, to help us understand your character and the fullness of who you are a little more each day. We love you, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at Tucson.com.